the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, clutches and clumps of stars and dragons. Sentences that convey immortality and complete omniscience found in a Bane book. Not sure which one? Better read all of them. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Tony Daniel, Bane Editor and our usual host, is the subject of the interview this time on the podcast, so I'm hosting the Bane Free Radio Hour this week. So, this time we have an interview with Tony Daniel conducted by Bane Consulting Editor David Afsharad, where Tony discusses his new book, The Dragon Hammer. This is a high fantasy novel about Viking kingdoms in America, vampiric Roman colonial plantations, dragons, young love, coming of age in a tough world, and much, much more. The Dragon Hammer is the first book in a new series called Wolf's Saga, which is a young adult series, but one that Tony assures us adults can read with pleasure as well. But if you do your buying at bookshops, you'll find it in the young adult or teen section. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's all coming up. Now, here's the news. The new E-Arcs are out. Well, almost all out as we speak. One will be out shortly, as soon as it's done baking and the toothpick comes out. So what's an E-Arc, you ask? Well... An E-Arc is the protean form of a common lymph newt, which is a curious part amphibian, part protozoan conglomerate, which is not sighted very often because it dissolves into pieces when you look at it funny. And who wouldn't? No, no. An E-Arc is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. It's the e-book version of the ARC. It is post-copy edit, but pre-proofread, and we sell them to you this way because why? Because early, especially if you're following a series. Out in E-Arc is Castaway Odyssey by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore. This is book five in the Boundary series, part of our new continuation of that series, which began with Castaway Planet. Sergeant Samuel Morgan Campbell had been in plenty of tight spots before, but nothing like this. His ship, the Outward Initiative, has been destroyed. Now, stranded on lifeboat LS-88, all systems dead, light years from any known colony, he and his crew of half-trained children will have to repair systems with no tools, navigate with no computers, and land a shuttle whose controls were more than half destroyed. What's more, the only planet in range has secrets that even Sergeant Campbell can't imagine. Also out shortly is Alliance of Shadows from Larry Correa and Mike Coopery, the third and final chapter in their Dead Six trilogy. Europe has spiraled into chaos, a conspiracy years in the making combined with general unrest leads to upheaval and revolution. In the midst of the murderous disorder, mercenary Michael Valentine is in Europe with a small team of his Exodus personnel trying to track down the evil and highly dangerous Katerina Montalvan. She has initiated a mysterious plot to do away with those who stand between her and ultimate power. The team is on their own, with few friends, few resources, and racing against the clock. Castaway Odyssey by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr and Alliance of Shadows by Larry Correa and Mike Coopery are now available in e-arc form at Bain eBooks. Hi everyone, it's the Bane Free Radio Hour, and this is David F. Shirod, and I am pleased to be here with the host with the most, Mr. Tony Daniel. You know him as the voice of the Bane Free Radio Hour, and also as an editor at Bane Books, but as you probably know, he is also an author in his own right. He has written over a couple dozen short stories, some of which have been nominated and won big-time awards. He's also written a comic, a couple horror movies, one of which was directed by... 
cult uh, horror director Larry Fessenden, and 10 novels. The 10th one is what we are going to be talking about today. Uh, but first, I want to mention uh, some of his earlier works, uh, things like Guardian of Night from Bane Books, and uh, two the last two novels in the general series with uh, Mr. David Drake, that was The Heretic and The Savior. And you may remember we talked about that here on the Bane Free Radio Hour back when uh, these came out. Uh, the new one is his first uh, fantasy novel and his first uh, young adult novel. It is called The Dragon Hammer. And Tony Daniel, thanks so much for uh, asking me to come on here and uh, talk with the book with you. Sure. It's, it, it would suck if I had to interview myself. My character yeah, yeah, you could honestly do a... would get in the way. <laughs> 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 Uh, let's start with this. I mentioned uh, the book The Dragon Hammer is the first fantasy novel and uh, that you have done. Everything previous has been science fiction, uh, I believe. The first book I ever wrote was, uh, was a project for, um, was a junior project at college. Um, and it was a fantasy novel. So the first thing I ever actually wrote um, as a no- in noveling form was a fantasy uh, so this, in a way, was a return back to your very earliest roots then. Um, I just wonder why why you are known for science fiction. Uh, why write a fantasy novel? What drew you? Uh, was this something you've wanted to do for a while or uh, uh, just something that occurred to you one day? What do you think? Yeah, well, no, well, the idea is something I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, and it was um it the idea is that vikings um you know the vikings came to newfoundland and newfoundland and settled and then left because um for various reasons but what if they had stayed what if there were some magical reasons that they were able to remain and stayed and then they they migrated south and in the end um settled north america down to um down into Mexico even and uh form in out west as well and formed uh in a, and remained me medieval um that a stasis sort of remained for for the next few hundred years and um next two centuries even um or one century and um they formed little medieval kingdoms um style kingdoms in various places in America, I've always driven through. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of traveling as a kid. We went on these giant vacations um, across the all around America, and I always kind of pictured, what if this place? You know, what if Bryce Canyon were were an ancient medieval king, kingdom? What if um, uh, I don't know, New York were a medieval harbor town? Um, something like that. And so um, I decided to finally write my Vikings in America, uh, America Divided into Medieval Kingdoms book, and but then I had to develop it, so it became something more than that. Um, and I I sort of, I sold the idea to Tony, uh, my boss, Tony Weiskopf, um, who is also my editor on this book. She's the one that that wanted um, that wanted it and gave me all the advice, and et cetera. Um, although you know I'm an editor at Bain, of course, but um, this was not this was me writing and Tony telling me uh, editorial advice. So, um, and she wanted me to. I, I saw the tour as an adult novel, and and I wrote her a first chapter, and she wanted me to. She she wanted the backstory of those characters. She really liked them, and she wanted to know how they came to be who they were, and I wrote their childhoods as a um, as a novella it just got longer and i started being really interested in what happened in their childhoods and um i realized that i had a young adult novel on my hands that that was what i was really writing it was you know i liked it tony really liked what i was turning in with it and we just decided that this was a ya and so that's what it, it became it's the story of wolf von dunstig who is the um the third son of a duke um, who doesn't expect to uh, to ever inherit anything. And, uh, you know, he's going to be a ranger or a scholar. He's a real scholarly young man. Um, 
or something like that, but he doesn't expect to, to have much of a momentous life. His brothers are going to be the one that inherit the kingdom, etc. But um, circumstances conspire to put him into a into more dire and um, momentous position in the in the book. So, and it's um, it's set in the Shenandoah Valley, which is the real Shenandoah Valley. I used um, I used German derivative, Germanic language derivative names for all the the Viking lands, except when there's an Indian name for something. So the Shenandoah Valley remains the Shenandoah Valley. The Shenandoah River stays the same. The Susquehanna, the Potomac, etc., are all the Chesapeake Bay are all the same in the book. Um, so Wolf is um, is lives in the uh, Mark of Shenandoah which is the Shenandoah Valley from um, about uh, Harper's Ferry down to um, the lower edge of Massanutan Mountain. So that's what it is. So this is, in a way, sort of an alternate history uh, Viking stay in America, but it's not an alternate history in the sense of uh, this is not taking place in the world as we know it. This is definitely a... um, a fantasy world. Uh, you've got a lot of, uh, you've really, uh, David Drake, let me just read this, uh, the little quote on the back said, um, a fun and fast-paced adventure of a young man coming of age in a well-realized Tolkien-esque world. And I think Tolkien-esque, to me, in this case, um, is not so much this is derivative of Tolkien, but it's it's just so richly realized. You have layers and layers and layers of stuff here that you can tell you have really worked out um, in the way that Tolkien did. Um, I wonder if you could talk about maybe some of the different uh, fantasy, some of the different races you have. You have humans, uh, gnomes, we've got elves. Um, talk about some of them and how they fit into the story and um, the ways you use them, maybe. Yeah. Well, it is Tolkien-esque. Um, I meant it to be uh, to use some of the Tolkien motifs because I've always, I've never liked fantasies that. Um, that decide that Tolkien must be uh, rewritten and that, you know, he's just one influence of fantasy. I mean, Tolkien created the fantasy genre in the 20th century, and to try to escape Tolkien's influence is just silly. But you need to reimagine it and make it more interesting. I mean, make it interesting in its own right, um, which was what I tried to do. So, yeah, I got elves, and they are Tolkien-like elves in many ways. Um, they are immortal, um, but the way that they relate to... Um, they're not like the, the same elves that their origin story is not the same as the one in um, in the Silmarillion. It's totally different. Um, they have souls that are stars, in fact. Um, an elf soul is a star, and they're each connected to a star in the sky. And if an elf dies, that star falls. And they, um, they, the shining of the star is itself um, the the life of that elf. And it they commune with their stars, and they um, talk to them in a, in a way that is, I hope, a little poetic and explains things. And I, and I, I work in some of the backstory of the world through this um, communion between my main character, um, my main female character, who's an elf named Saiyan Amberstone, um, and she, uh, she frequently consults with her star about things. And uh, it was really fun writing those sections. Um, I, I wanted to do, like, a, an opposite Gandalf. So I made a really short dude who who is a gnome, but he's still, and he's, and he's a little pudgy, and he is, uh, but he is really, um, really a fierce fellow. Um he doesn't put up. He's a great teacher. He is the tutor at the castle, and he's a scholar at the university in the town. Um, and he doesn't put up with any nonsense from his charges, whether they're royal or not. He doesn't care. They have to learn their stuff, yeah. and he teaches uh, wolf sagas and things like that. Wolf is very good at it, um, partly because this um, his no mentor, whose name is Talos, um, has made him good at it. Talos was, he was one of my favorite characters in this, actually. Um, there's a scene where he's 
pretty badass early on. I won't say too much about it. Um, and uh, then, you know, obviously throughout. I kind of almost wondered, you said he was uh, the, not anti-Gandalf, but the opposite of Gandalf while still being Gandalf-like. I also wondered, was he based on anyone from your, like, a teacher from your real life or anything? Or you just, uh, or no? He kind of had that feel to me of someone you might have maybe known. Well, um, yeah, he kind of is sort of based on a couple of teachers, but one of them would be George Gorey, who was my science teacher in high school, who was this um, curmudgeonly um, wonderful teacher who everyone um, adored and was afraid of at the same time at my high school, um, who taught chemistry and physics at the high school. Um, And so he's, he's kind of based on him. He's also kind of based on me. You had me. Yeah, I guess that's I try to. That's kind of the way I like to teach too. His his methodology. Sure. Um, so um, that and um, the the other thing about the gnomes is that I mean we can get into the a lot of the mythology of how the world is and why it's different than ours um, has to do with dragons and the gnomes are um, the dragons are tended by dwarfs and. Um, their interiors are populated by dwarfs, and the dwarfs do things like unclog their veins and things like that. But um, not all the dwarfs. Uh, there's, there's only a certain amount needed, and but they keep having dwarf babies. And these tribes ventured outside and um, ventured onto the surface and formed their own uh, society. And that's what the gnomes are. They're they're basically much like. Uh, well, they're not like dogs, but the way that dogs can interbreed with wolves, they, you know, gnomes and dwarfs are really basically the same species, as it were. But they're human well, too. They can they can interbreed with humans as well. It's just um, that they need to be small so they can go inside the dragon and do stuff to help the dragon. Let's talk about the dragons because I think that is the thing about this book, this world, this mythology that is the most unique i think I, you know i know you're not supposed to say most unique uh you all my former english teachers are now upset with me but uh <clears throat> the most interesting the most something, something i've never seen before uh th- these are not dragons like um at the end of sleeping beauty or something and you you know you, they're not a big lizard that breathes fire nest in the way that we think of them uh, so tell us about the dragons and how they fit into the uh the mythology of this world well they're big for one thing really big um really big yeah. i mean a land is uh is something that sits on a dragon's back or sits on a dragon's body and formed around it the world itself is um is a clump of dragon baby dragons. It's an egg. Um, it's a clutch. That's what I call it. And um, they're all tangled around each other really tightly and um, incredibly um, intricately. But worlds and lands um, within, I mean, uh, lands and and kingdoms and such often are associated with a particular dragon. Um, particularly in the Viking lands, the Kalta lands. Um, as I as I call them, and Shenandoah has its own dragon, and the Blue Ridge Park, the Blue Ridge Mountains there, um, are called the Dragonback Mountains because that's what they are—dragon spines that are are showing above the earth. They're covered with, you know, they're Appalachians, so they're not like spiky like the um, the the Rockies, but they're covered with trees. But they're dragon spines sticking up there, and. Um, that is the the back of the the Shenandoah Dragon, the the Blue Ridge Mountains there, and other parts of the Shenandoah Valley are are portions of the dragon covered over here and there. So every um, and and the dragons are babies. They're going to hatch one day, and that's the whole point of the entire world is that, and that's why the stars are. Um, are there in the first place. The stars are sort of tending the dragons. They sing them to sleep. They sing them lullabies. And elves are put on put in this place as, as dragon tenders. Um, although all of this is stuff that I keep out of the story a lot. I, you know, I let it seep in here and there, but I don't want to dump it all in. Um, if 
fact, I just want it to to barely show in play, like the like the Dragonback Mountains in the same way. I want the mythology to sort of um, poke through. So the dragons are this um, incredibly tightly wound um, um, clump, a uh, clutch of of baby dragons that are asleep, that are not fully developed yet, not awake, but they dream, and their dreams. Um, the, the ruler of the land, um, especially in Shenandoah, um, connects with the dragon. They dream dragon dreams. The dragon dreams and and the dragon visions of the land um, come to them. So they can see parts of the land. They can understand what's going on um, elsewhere. They can feel the pain of the land, etc., because they they get the dragon dreams. And that's the thing about Wolf, is he's not supposed to get any of these. Uh, he's supposed to go to the firstborn, but he starts getting these dragon dreams, the in, dragon-induced trances, and he doesn't know what to do about it at the beginning of the book, because it's not supposed to happen at all. And he's really worried that this will tear apart his family and maybe... Um, Cause great problems for the rulership of the of the land. So he's dealing with that at the very beginning of the book. Um, and the the other thing about the dragons is is they're squeezed so tightly that those convolutions between the dragons, that emptiness between the dragons, takes on a sentience of its own. And in this case, um, that emptiness, that little. Uh, Incredibly squeezed tight emptiness between the dragons has turned evil in our our universe in this universe, and that's the bad guy, the ultimate bad guy in the book. Um, although we're not going to meet him until book three. Um, okay. But that that sort of um, emptiness and evil between the dragons is, um, and you can see it on the cover. I had I, I told um, Dan uh, DeSantos, the cover artist, about this, and said maybe you can work like that in. And so there's uh, some green between the dragons showing yeah. up in that cover image, and that that's the bad guy, Ubel, who is um, who's this who's basically made of emptiness. And um, the reason that he's the bad guy is that he realizes that when the dragons hatch and fly, he will cease to exist. And it, but if he can kill the dragons, kill all the baby dragons, the clutch will just sit there forever. And he'll be able to, you know, live gleefully in the destroyed ruins of the of the dead clutch. So that's his goal: is to keep that, um, keep himself um, alive by killing the dragons, the dragon edge, dragon edge, the dragon egg, the dragon clutch. So, but all of this is is you know way in the background, and none of the main characters really know this except Talos very much. It, it, eventually, they're coming to know it, of course. Yeah, let's talk about some of the characters, um, because this is sort of the story, mostly, of um, this family, but they're, um, they are, there's also some kind of adopted siblings. Uh, so we got Wolf, and then his sister, uh, Ula, uh, is in there. Uh, he's got, like we said, two older brothers. Um, but then he's also got, uh, like his buddy is named Rainer, but he's sort of a, an adopted, um, in a way. And then there's, uh, Ravenel. Um, so maybe, uh, let's talk about, we're talking about all this big world building stuff, which is fascinating, but let's also just bring it down now and talk about the characters that we meet and that we follow along in the book, follow along with. Sure. Well, Rainer is Wolf's best friend and his his foster brother. Um, Rainer is um, is not nobility. He's been um, he's um, a commoner. That's in the he, he's part of the, the the Duke's family. There, the place is ruled by uh, the Duke. There's no um, king of Shenandoah, but he's part of the the royal um, family there as a foster. Um, and he uh, is looked down on by the other um, upper-class kids, you know, the gentry kids that are part of the castle coterie. Um, they all go to school together, and they and the, the boys are taught. They, they spend the afternoon fighting, learning martial skills. You know, from a young age, that's what they do every afternoon is, is, um, is learn stuff from the weapons master and fight and, and mock fight and 
train um, because they're all going to be warriors ultimately in some way or another. Um, first and foremost, it being the Middle Ages sort of mentality and such. And um, Rainer is, um, he's sort of like a guy that um, a nouveau riche, um, his dad, um, sent him to this place. Um, and, and he's out of place. He's a commoner kid. And uh, it, it's like first uh, a first-generation kid that comes to uh, to Oxford or Cambridge or something like that. He's just, he just feels out of place. But Wolf befriends him, and he's been a great friend to Wolf. And the other thing about Rainer is he's just athletically gifted as hell. He's an incredibly good um, fighter and warrior. He's the best in the castle, and there's everybody knows it, even if they look down on him in other ways. And so he is he considers himself Wolf's protector because Wolf is, you know, he's, he can take care of himself, but he's not a, a great fighter. He's a thinker, and he gets uh, a little pushed around by the castle kids as a result. Um, so Rainer is a um, really good guy. He doesn't, he, he's not dumb by any means, but Wolf is the, you know, the brains of the group, the um, the guy, the talker, and Rainer is the muscle. Um, and uh, everybody doesn't really know just how rich Rainer is, by the way. That's the, that's one of the, it's not a secret um, I hint at it in the book, but his dad basically finances the entire frickin' Mark, um, and that's the reason he was, you know, in, admitted as Foster, because um, his dad is the banker for, for the Mark. But um, everybody just thinks he's like the son of a coal miner, which he is. So, um, so there's Rainer, and then there's um, there's Ravenel. Ravenel is a different kind of Foster in that she's unwilling, she's a hostage um, there was a war about um, 12 years ago, um, 10 years before, where um, between um, the Mark of Shenandoah and the kingdom just to the south of it, which is a colony of the Roman Empire that is called um, Valobac. And Valobac um, was defeated, finally, after it looked like they were going to win. And as part of the peace treaty... Ravenel was taken in as a foster to be raised in the mark of Shenandoah in its main city where Wolf and all these other people live, which is called Rock and Rose, the city is. So Ravenel's been raised here, and she's never been home. Her mother comes to visit um, once a year. Her mother's the queen of the of the colony below uh, the mark. But um, that's all she knows of her homeland, really. And so she's really a fish out of water. And she's irritable about it. And she's um, she, she's, she's incredibly royal. She's going to be the queen um, someday. Um, and so she's, she's a little bit dismissive of everyone else. But um, it's all insecurity. Wolf and Saiyan and, and Rainer see that, and they take her in. And so she's part of this group as well. They're friends, even though she's, she's awful snippy to all of them all the time. So the four main characters in the book are Ravenel, Archambault, um, and Rainer, and Wolf, and Saiyan. And they're all 16 and 17. Sayan is mentally seventeen, right? She's actually sixty-two years old. But yeah. um, how else? How else mature? She's a teenage elf, basically. So. You should have called this "I Was a Teenage Elf" and just gone like a very like Roger Corman B movie sort of way. That would have been one way to take this. Just my thought. Uh, <laughs> not that this wasn't good as it is. Kind of what Sayan's chapters are is her. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do I like him? Do I not like him? I don't know. He's gonna uh, die. I'm not. You know. So. Yeah. You know all the things uh, you think about as a 16 year old elf, I guess. Um, you hit on something with Ravenel, which is the Roman Empire, uh, which we have not talked about yet. Which is they. Uh, this is. Um, they have a certain religion there that she follows uh, that plays a pretty big uh, part in this. That was really cool and really weird and uh kind of gross in a way and i loved it so i want you to talk about it a little bit um what it is and how it fits into the story well um it's 
It's called Talaya, and um, it's it's basically Catholicism subverted by evil vampires um, who answer to uh, this this being of uh, of evil that I alluded to before. Although we don't know about that yet in the book, that'll come up in later in later installments. But um, it's, and it's a hierarchical vampiric sort of structure. They have this. Uh, they have communion. All right, it's Catholic based, and Catholics should not hate me for this. Although, because the church has been subverted by evil, um, it's not really Catholic. But the the communion uh, ritual has been retained. But instead of um, the bread being dipped into the into the wine and the you know the body of Christ into the blood of Christ. Um, Symbolically, or you know, transfiguratively, whatever. There's this weird um, herb that is made into wafers and is dipped into actual blood of people and um, and eaten. And when it is, um, it gives the eater control over um, over the mental control. That is. Like a vampire exerts mental dominion over um, whoever's blood it was. And so there's a limit, there's like a radius to how far this control can reach. But the entire southern U.S., um, it's not the U.S., of course, is Roman colonies that are, that are based in, in fact, it goes all the way to Mexico where the center of um, the center of this um, evil is located in Teclan. Um, and uh, is is plantation-based um, uh, slave serf economies, and I call them blood servants, the serfs that work the land. Uh, and they're all mentally um, dominated and, and, and under the control of lords and, and, and such who mentally actually control them through everybody going to the service um, once a week and putting their blood into the chalice and, and the the Lord eating portions of it to retain control of them. And it creates, um, you know, I've got all kind of ways that it works, but I, and I don't say, but it, 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 it creates some, um, it eats into your mind. Um, and that fungus that the bread uh, in quotation marks is made of will grow. It's um, into the minds of those who eat it. Um, transforming them into something that's not quite human anymore. And Ravenel is a participant in this religion. She's got two blood servants. Um, she's a devotee. She doesn't know um, the extent of, of the evil behind it all. Um, she just thinks it's her way and better than the ways of the barbaric north. So, um, so the bad guys are um, the ultimate bad guys in in the story. Are these? Um, there's a war that's going to go on between, and the, the the southern colonies want to expand. The evil wants to take over the whole world, so it can kill the dragons ultimately. But that's not. But the southern colonies have long been wanting to take over the north, and um, that's really the story of the series. Is um, Wolf fighting back against that, if he can survive the first book, um, and leading uh, leading the fight against that. But they want to um, overcome the, these Viking kingdoms and convert them into the same kind of blood slavery as, as they practice. One thing, they're... The, um... They are looking for something, or one of the the guys is, and that is the uh, titular dragon hammer. Uh, I think that's the word. <laughs> Anyways, uh, what is the dragon hammer, and uh, how does it play into this? It's a very metal title, and I mean that as a compliment. Oh, so. Yeah. <laughs> think of... Uh, uh, what is that? In there, some great metal band type, uh, album cover with holding a Magellan kind of hammer and uh, it's like Iron Maiden or something. I don't know. I yeah, remember. yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Dragon Hammer is not is it's not entirely clear what it does um, at first, but it is clear that they need to they need to find this thing because it's it's the only thing that can kill the 
the Darth Vader-like bad guy that's about to come against them. Um, and Talos knows this, and it eventually um, it it eventually becomes clear to Wolf because the dragon is telling him this is part of the dragon dreams, the dragon trance that he's having. Um, and it's hidden, and nobody knows where it was hidden, and it was it was used by one of Wolf's ancestors centuries ago, and then about two hundred years ago. Um, it disappeared, and nobody nobody knows where it went. Most people think it was mythic, because how could you lose something like that? Um, and so, um, part of the part of the story is finding that thing, so that they because there is while there is um, some very uh, real human uh, antagonists who are invading and and killing people with swords uh, and, and arrows. And such. Um, there's also a supernatural um, enemy who's who's behind this, who they have, to, who Wolf has to confront, um, or somebody has to, in order to. Um, and he is himself after the Dragon Hammer because the Dragon Hammer is made of a substance that our ultimate bad guy greatly craves. Um, so uh, it's. It, I can't talk about it too much without giving away, sure. uh, you know, what, yeah. what it's all, what the ending is all about. But it's a, it's right, an right. artifact of great power that they are all after, and nobody knows where it is at first, and they're trying to track it down without getting killed. And there is, uh, at the same time, an invasion and a war on in the book. Yeah, a lot going on at once. You mentioned the Darth Vader esque uh, bad guy. Um, do you want to talk about him, or you want to leave that a uh, surprise for the readers? Well, I mean, he is um, he the first of the of the elves, or these four elves of um, the kind of godlike elemental elves, and he was the god, um, the 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 pillar of the north, um, and they were corrupted by this evil spirit, Ubel, and uh, he had his soul, which was a star, because else souls are stars, fell from the sky, and it was replaced by um, this emptiness, and so he's become like a, much like a ring wraith, um, but this is my kind of ring wraith, and he's behind, um, and he's really hard to kill, and he's very deadly, and he stinks horribly. He's gross, and yeah. And he's got and this he creepy, like, vulgar face, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that comes from... The other big influence that I'm bringing in here is C.S. Lewis, um, because those were my huge influences as a as a young man and then later. As, and I love uh, the Narnia books in its, in its world. And he is kind of like the Tash um, god in... Uh, what is it? I think it's a horse and his boy... Um, that that Lewis book, who is um, a stinky buzzard-like god-like being that's called into being by the belief of um, of the uh, Calermen, I think they are in the in the Lewis book. So, and I sort of like just took him out of there, and he's you know the description of him. So that's basically who. Um, who the ultimate bad guy who's directing uh, in in the dragon hammer who's who's wolf and the others have to overcome if they're going to if they're going to survive because he right. is after their deaths and destruction and he is um quite capable of doing it if they don't um if they don't find um a way to stop him well um so that's him we've we've not hit on one big component of this i think as far as uh, both plot-wise, they play a big role, and then also in the world-building, and that is you have these um, tier, which are these sort of like human, animal, hybrid people, races. Um, they're talking animals. But they're not, I mean, they're not, there's like the buffalo men, right? And they're like, they're, they're sort of like centaurs, right? Yeah, and, yeah. There's centaurs. There's buffalo men who have buffalo-like heads. There's bear men who look pretty much like bears that walk on two feet. Um, the fawns are goat tier. Um, and uh, there's there, there's bobcats and everything you can imagine has a tier version of it. Um, and the uh, the bear are 
the most badass of all the tier, and they yeah. um, they are Wolf's um, main ally in fighting back after um, after dire things happen to the to the Mark, and he hooks up with um, with them. And I just, um, you know, like I, I wanted to. I, I love talking animals in, in in Narnia, but I wanted to make them really scary talking animals that, yeah. <laughs> that could really threaten you, and that are part of an army. And um, the other thing that I did was I did a huge amount of research on um, on medieval warfare and weapons. Um how arrows are made, how they're deployed, the different kinds of bows. Um, I really wanted to get that right. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Bernard Cornwell and his books, especially, that um, that are set in, in those times. And uh, I wanted to get it, as, get it as right as he gets it. So I did a lot of research. Um, and I learned really cool things that some of them make their way into the story. For instance... Um, Arrow fletching is usually done from the same side. All three arrows in a fletched arrow come from the same side of of a wing. So you want left hand, left wings, feathers only, or right wing feathers only um, to uh, to flesh your arrow with. Otherwise, it won't fly as true. Which was really cool to, to find that out. And then it. So if you've got a mixed bag of feathers, your arrows are going to be inferior if they're made out of that, for instance. Um, just stuff like that just, you know, kind of fascinates me. And yeah. I worked it in where I could. And there's some fighting, and Wolf has to has to use those martial skills he's been spending all these years developing, uh, fighting in the yard, in the Bailey court, in, uh, in the castle. He's finally pushed to the limit. And a lot of the... His development is about where you get the courage to to fight and to defend what you believe in, um, even if it means your life. Yeah. Um, also, I just talking about you researching this. I remember you googling when I was up up at the Bain offices if a eagle could take down a wolf. I think right <clears throat> with falconry was that what it was or a deer? I don't remember. Yeah. And yeah. You, well, yeah. That's the other, the, yeah. I love so. uh, I love the idea. I don't know much about. Um, I, I haven't participated much in um, in falconry, uh, but I learned I, I learned a lot about. It. I read a lot about. It. I talked. Then I started talking to people who do it, and um, they told me I learned a lot of things that you don't know just from seeing your standard presentation of it. And different places in the world, different people use um, various birds of prey. You don't have to use a hawk. Um, and it, it people use um, golden eagles particularly to take down wolves in Asia. Um, and I saw some videos of this that's, that um, one of my, uh, my sources pointed me toward. It was really cool, and I wanted to work that in to the story. And because it's America, I wanted my... Uh, one of my birds to be a bald eagle, the one of my hunting birds. And although you know, I found out a lot about bald eagles. For instance, they're sea eagles, they're water birds, and they like fish. And it's really hard to train them to be hunters, but it's been done. Um, it's, if you feed them fish after they do the the the, the takedown, then you can do it um, with certain eagles. So just, I mean, it's just all kind of cool stuff that I yeah. found out in the course of, of doing this, and I worked as much of it in as I could. I really wanted a bald eagle to be wolf's, uh, one of Wolf's hunting birds. So, because we're in America. Yes. <laughs> USA. Ultimately, you know, the, the overall stretch of the, uh, of the story is that we're heading toward um, a kind of unity that, um, that, that might be an alternate America if it were medieval-based, um, which is what I, I want ultimately to uh, to be the opposition well, force um, to this evil uh, Roman Empire. But we don't get there in this book by any means. Um, it, Wolf's just got to grow up a little and learn how to, how to fight against the people who are trying to kill him in this one and figure out whether he's in love with 
um, with an elf girl and what that means, <laughs> and et cetera. Um, well, I did and wonder... The, um, the bear girl who wants him, uh, <laughs> if he can escape her clutches as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did wonder, we got all these, um, we got gnomes, we got Romans, we've got Vikings. Um, I did wonder about uh, the folks that were here before they came over, that's the Native Americans, and uh, how they fit into this, yeah, or, or as scralings as they're called by the um, by oh, okay. people, yeah. because that's what the Vikings right. call them. Um, they are around. They are not in the valley. They've they've they were um, the particular tribe that was there um, joined in alliance with some some bad creatures. Um, if when the mart was being founded and were um, pushed out, but. They've been pushed around and bullied, just like um, in in real history. But because the weapons weren't incredibly advanced over over um, Native American weapons of, of reality, um, they held their own. And so there are Native American kingdoms um, that are in in principalities and et cetera. One of those is very near is nearby to um the Mark of Shenandoah and it is Potomac, Potomac, which is where Harper's Ferry is now. It's at the confluence of the um Shenandoah and the Potomac River. And that's gonna play a big part in book two. Um I'm gonna bring in uh there there is a Native American character that, that comes into to, to play. And um they're going to have a, a lot more to do with the story as we go along, um, various um, Native American characters. But I, they they don't show up um, except as um, at, as part of the backstory and the background mm-hmm. in um, in the Dragon Hammer at first. But they're coming. Well, since we are mentioning the second and third books, you've mentioned both of those now, and this says Wolf Saga number one. Uh, I am I to assume then there will be more. Are you working on the second book now, and how long do you, is this open ended, or do you invi- do you have a, a set number of books you're you're thinking you're gonna uh, work with here? Uh, what what does the future hold? I sold a trilogy to Tony, um, and I have a, a, a three book idea that's going to play itself out over it. The second book is going to be called The Amber Arrow. And the third book will be called The Dacian Ring. Um, okay. So, um, I've already got my titles, I hope. <laughs> that's, right the, now, that's the hard almost, part. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm closing in on, the, um, on, on finishing The Amber Arrow, and it will be out next summer. Okay, so you already got a release date and everything. Great. Um, well, let me ask you this too. So this is a, was not conceived as a YA novel. You said it was an adult novel and then, um, adult novel, not in the, uh, adult paperback sense of the like 1960s, but, uh, a novel for adults. And, um, now it's a YA, but I think, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I think this would absolutely appeal not just to, uh, teenagers, but, um, to adults as well. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, the, I, the way I went about writing it was the way that Heinlein or, or tried to do, the way that Heinlein always wrote his um, juvenile novels, which is they're just regular books with with main characters who are um, kids or teenagers in this case. So that's how I, I went about writing this. Although I did deliberately... Um, come up with a lot of euphemisms for cussing. I often put cuss words in my other books, and I decided I was I wanted to write a book that didn't have any um, in it. So, no cussing. Um, I'm trying to think now. I read the book. Is this the first Tony Daniel book that doesn't have a sex scene in it? Or is there one, and I'm just not remembering it? It, I believe it is. There's wow. There wow. may be a sex scene in this one that you're not aware of yet. Um, yeah, I, nobody. I haven't said yet how elves get pregnant. <laughs> but 
Bloody yeah, Mary. there's not, you know, there's not a big old sweaty sex scene, which I put in every right. everything I've ever written up until now, basically. So, because um, I want to reflect so, human nature in what I write, but I also don't want to write about sixteen-year-olds and seventeen-year-olds doing. Right. You know, they're not. They're good kids. You know, these are not. Yeah. Um, this is not like torn apart families. Although Ravenel's, you know, had some tough right. times and Rainers and away from us. You know, these are. These are kids that um, have their problems and and they need to grow up and have things to overcome. But these are not kids that um, you know have been treated horribly by life and have been raised by drug addicts. You know, and and only think in um, dystopian terms. This is not yeah. uh, that kind of book at all. These are kids yeah. who have heroism uh, built into them and just need to figure out how to call upon it, like most kids. Yeah. Yeah, I think you did a great job with Wolf striking that balance of he's not uh, Superman or Tarzan, uh, but he's also not like just the sullen teen uh, nerd either. You you do a very nice job of uh, walking that line and making him a, uh, a maybe he's a reluctant hero, but he's still a hero. Uh, yeah, uh, well, the dragon well, so. does, will not let him be a sullen uh, dropout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna let that happen. So. All right. Well, I think I think that should just about do it. Uh, unless there is something I missed that you wanted to uh, let the listeners know about. One of the things I'd like to mention is I I love the cover of this by Dan DeSantos. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, it's it's beautiful cover and it. And it's embossed. The dragon scales are embossed. Right. As I say, what you can't see on when you're looking at the uh, Bain eBooks or Amazon site is that it's yeah, it's textured or embossed with this. Yeah, it feels cool. So um, <laughs> that's the first book I've ever had that like you know that didn't just have the race a race title or type, but had um, that that it's YA. You know, YAs get all these effects that yeah. Uh, that normal books don't always get. So, but every book, it, it would look weird if it didn't have cool effects. And it's got this really cool scale thing that yeah. um, the book designer worked out, and and I like it. And Endo yeah. Santos is just a great artist. Um, does and he really captured Wolf, I think, in in this cover. So I was very happy about that when I saw it. Yeah. And. Yeah, I really look cool forward cover. to see what uh, he does with the Amber Arrow because he's on schedule to do it. I hear. All right. All right. Well, hopefully, yeah, we got to have them all. They got all match for my collection. So, so. yeah, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm immensely happy with how it turned out, and I think it's um, it's the it's it's an answer to a lot of uh, a lot of um, depressing kind of fantasy. I think as well. Um, yeah. There's a lot of churn and, and and chopping and sword fighting, but there's also a lot of um, a lot of feeling that we can do this. We will fight the bad guys, um, and we'll go down fighting. We're not going to give in to this. We're not going to have a dystopic world if we can help it. So, yeah, well, excellent. Well, it, as we've said, it's the Dragon Hammer, uh, and it is out now from Bane Books uh, in paperback. And of course, ebook. Uh, you can get that on uh, baneebooks.com or uh, wherever you like to purchase your uh, Dead Tree books from. And Tony, I also want to say thanks to you for letting me come on and uh, talk about the book with you. And congratulations on it. It's a great read. And I think uh, young adults and uh, middle aged adults and old adults, all the adults, uh, and maybe even some kids will love this thing. So, uh, anyways, thanks for having me on. Thanks, David. Now we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyber spy Adele Mundy? 
The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to their real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe even along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is another entry in David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Chapter 3 The Bantry Estate, Cinnabar Here he comes, Hogg said, looking to the northeast. And he's not half moving. Daniel rose from his seat on the porch that wrapped around three sides of the manor. Tom Sand's gray air car was approaching over open country which allowed much higher speeds than if it had followed the road from Stavingham, the market town for the region. As Hogg had suggested, the car was moving very fast, faster than Daniel would have said was safe, even twenty feet above the ground. As the driver approached the village proper, he lifted higher still, sunset brushed the bow, and let the angle of attack break his vehicle smoothly above the houses. The air car had slowed to a walking pace before it settled to the paved plaza following the curve of Bantry's seawall. He's here, Daniel called into the house as he started toward the car. When he noticed that his servant was coming along, he said, I don't think I need help to greet a friendly businessman, Hogg. I thought I'd shot with his bodyguard, Hogg said blandly, continuing to match Daniel step for step. The driver was opening the limousine's back door for Tom Sand. His uniform perfectly matched the vehicle's finish. Daniel smiled. He'd noticed that city folk generally thought tenants were louts, with no more will than the sheep they tended while not jumping to fulfill the master's whim. That hadn't been his experience. For that matter, sheep had their own opinions also. Welcome back to Bantry, Sand, Daniel called. How hungry are you? Because I thought we could talk and watch the sunset from one of the benches. There were a pair of west-facing arbors at the inner edge of the plaza. Before we went into the house and had dinner, I've invited the manager of the packing plant and his wife to eat with us, and Miranda, of course. As usual, life was more complicated than the polite words into which it had to be compressed. Cloris had told Gwen Higginson that the squire hadn't caught enough floor fish sprats to feed their surprised guest from the city. Gwen had called the plant, and her husband had rushed home with a dozen sprats, Gwen had filleted them and carried them over to Miranda. Daniel, when he heard about the confusion, had invited the Higginsons to dinner with the three of them, later in the evening. It's what I should have done in the first place. But the whole business had been unexpected. I appreciate you seeing me, Leary, said Tom Sand. He was a solid man and not fat, though he obviously carried more weight than he had when he was thirty years younger. At one time, his hair must have been red and I'm not going to be able to taste my food until I've talked to you. He grunted a laugh and added, We'll see how I feel then. The arbors had been planted as saplings, then bent and trimmed to shape. They'd been allowed to continue to grow upward. Their crowns provided summer shade to the grapes planted around their roots. Daniel gestured his guest to one end of the bench under the arbor and took the other. Sand settled with a sigh. Meeting Daniel's eyes, he said, Leary, I'm here to ask you a favor, and I know bloody well that you don't owe me anything. I'm not sure that's true, Daniel said mildly, but friends don't keep that kind of score sheet anyway. Ask away, Tom. Ah, said Sand, grimacing. I was glad when your fiancé said that Lady Mundy wasn't here. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying, because I know you'll have to tell her, but this is going to be easier to say as one man to another. Go on, Daniel said. Is Mistress Sand seeing another man? That seemed unlikely, and it was even less likely that Tom Sand would come here for advice in such a case. Daniel's experience was all on the other leg of such triangles. Bernice was a widow when I married her, Sand said. She was born in Zenos, but Ordos Cleveland, her first husband, came from Oriel County. His family was something there, he guffawed. Sort of like the Learys here, I guess, he said. But not in Zenos and politics, you see. Daniel smiled. 
He was letting his guest tell the story his own way, but he couldn't help wishing that way was a little more direct. The clouds on the horizon were dark in silhouette, but higher in the western sky some cirrus curls were still pink. Cleveland came to Zenos and got into finance, Sand said. Connections helped him there, you know. Daniel nodded. He married Bernice and cut quite a swath for a few years, Sand said, his voice beginning to rasp. They had a son, that's Rickard. And then Cleveland went bust in a big way. He went up to the Oriel County property to think, he said, and he drowned swimming in a lake there. He spread his hands. Well, it was ruled an accident, and why not, he said. And Bernice went around and took care of what was owing. Cleveland had been borrowing on securities that he was supposed to be holding for clients, I hear. But they were all taken care of, and I married Bernice. I believe you made a fortunate marriage, Daniel said. That was true for Sand. Mistress Sand was a very impressive woman, and she had been a considerable social step upward for a self-made contractor like Tom Sand. Age and plain looks aside, Daniel would rather have married the wolf eel. The problem is the boy, Rickard, Sand said, then bitterly. He was fifteen and trouble when I met Bernice. He was worse bloody trouble all the time until he ran off three years ago, and now he's back and says he's reformed. Damned if I don't think he's the worst trouble of all, bloody kid. I don't get along well with my father, Daniel said. That was an understatement. He'd entered the RCN Academy at age 16 after a screaming row with Quarter Leary. That the episode hadn't ended in murder showed that both men had better control than their closest associates would have guessed. I can imagine that a stepson and stepfather have an even harder time. It was more than that, Sand said, looking toward the pale horizon. He sounded despairing rather than angry. He resented me for being an oik. Bernice remarried beneath her, you see. And he resented her for being alive. Cleveland drank a lot. When he took a swing at me with a bottle, I told Bernice to keep him out of my sight or I'd leave. He looked at his big scarred hands and grinned ruefully at Daniel. That's not how I'd have handled the problem with any other man alive, he said. Daniel grinned back. He'd never doubted that Tom Sand had been raised in a tough school. So after boarding school, Bernice got Cleveland jobs with family friends, Sand said. Hers and her first husband's, not mine. I didn't check up on him, but none of the jobs lasted long. Then about three years ago, he went off somewhere, and Bernice didn't hear anything from him. Well, he was twenty-four then, old enough to live his own life. Me, I was just glad he was out of mine. Spray flashed white several hundred yards out to sea. Moments later came the slap of a fish whose leap had raised the spray. It must have been of some size to be heard over the land breeze. So Cleveland's back, Sand said, gravel entering his tone. He's joined a cult and says he's reformed. He apologized to me like a man, I'll give him that. But he says he's found a treasure on a planet called Corsera, and he wants Bernice to fund an expedition to dig it up. There's fighting going on, and he wants the treasure to buy arms for his cult, the Transformationists, so they don't get squeezed by one side or the other. Corsera? Daniel repeated, frowning. There's fighting there, all right. I can tell you that Admiral Bocal is putting together a squadron right now, just in case the RCN gets involved. Daniel had been offered a command of a cruiser in Bocal's squadron, but he decided to remain on half pay a little longer instead. If real war resumed between Cinnabar and the Alliance, Captain Daniel Leary could hope for something more interesting than a cruiser under Bocal. The Admiral was known to be so concerned about making the wrong decision that he never made a really right one. I guess Bernice knows that too, San said morosely. She couldn't fund it herself since she paid off the people Ordos built, but she's gone to her friends looking for investors. He turned to meet Daniel's gaze and said, She didn't ask me, didn't even mention it to me, but I heard. What is the treasure? Daniel asked, thinking over what he had learned recently about the Corsera situation. Whether or not he served under Admiral Bocal, it seemed likely that the RCN would shortly be involved in the region. It seems to me that you'd have to pay extremely well to get anyone with good sense to go to the middle of a war zone to look for treasure. 
Sand nodded. Bernice believes in the treasure, he said. I don't, but that isn't the main problem. I figured the only crew which'll sign up for the job is one that'll knock Cleveland on the head for his stake. The only question is whether they'll do it as soon as they lift to Cinnabar orbit or hold off till they learn how bad things on Coursera really are. He stared at his bald fist as he ground the knuckles together. Look, Leary, he said, raising his eyes again. Here's the rub. I don't think the universe would be a worse place without Cleveland in it. But his mother loves him and I love Bernice. It'll break her heart if he's scragged, especially if she found the money to let him go off and do such a bloody fool thing. Sand took a deep breath. Leary, he said, I want you to carry Cleveland on your yacht. I know it won't be cheap, but I've got a good business, and I'll mortgage the last paperclip if that's what it takes. I think something can be worked out, Daniel said, because his guest needed an answer immediately. There was an almost infinite number of matters to be determined before he lifted from harbor with Rickard Cleveland. To begin with, it probably wouldn't be in the Princess Cecile, his yacht. The details could wait, however. Tom Sand had to know that Daniel was considering the proposition before he would be able to relax. Daniel stood. Why don't you stay the night, Sand, he said. In the morning, I'll ride back to Zenos with you and talk to some people. Ah, and Miranda will come back with us too, if you've got room in your car. The limousine would seat at least six passengers, along with Hogg sitting up front with the driver. Sand rose also, expelling a deep breath. By God, Leary, he said. By God, you don't know what that means to me. Let's go in and have some dinner, Daniel said, starting toward the manor house. The episode with the Wolfiel had almost slipped from his memory, displaced by the excitement of planning a new project. I don't know about you, but I worked up an appetite today fishing. As soon as I get back to Zenos, I'll talk to Adele, but I want to do that in person. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to David Afsharad, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and maybe to that Tony Daniel guy. I'm Christopher Rocchio, sitting in for Tony Daniel, whose new book, The Dragon Hammer, is now out at booksellers everywhere. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.